Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. I'm Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, your host. Welcome back to another week. And I just wanted to say thank you so much to our continued sponsor, San Diego State University's Sports MBA program. They've been awesome. And so I just wanted to say thank you to them and to you all. Um, I've gotten a few responses about what we should do for a 50th episode coming up in a couple of weeks. Keep those coming in. Um, I'm really excited about it. And I just want to let you know about a couple of events that I am personally going to be at um, this month. So on October 16th, I will be... Nope, it's October 19th. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to be at two events on that day. I'm going to be at the Women in Leadership and Philanthropy event at USF. Um, I will also be at the Women's Sports Museum Gala that evening. And then um, the following Friday... I think it is that date. I will be at the um, Women's Conference of Florida. So if you happen to be around, um, pop by, say hello. That'd be great. I'm super excited about this episode. I have Christina Uncle. And Christina right now is an attorney. That's her day gig, um, which is great. I like attorneys, right? Don't you? I mean, I am an attorney. But what is really fascinating about Christina is... Uh, another job that she's had for about 20 something years. She's a FIFA ref, uh, referee, excuse me, I should probably use the correct term. She's one of three women in the United States with the FIFA badge. Uh, And that's really cool. And there's this like whole process to get to that point. And clearly it's hard. Um, But she, she does this refereeing and it's pretty incredible. So we kind of dive deep into that because I had no idea what referees do to get to the pro levels. Um, I had no idea what they do before games, to be honest, and how much physical um, maintenance was involved, just like with any other athlete. Uh, Christina has a few other side little gigs that she has. Um, She has kind of like a a side advocacy business. Um, Another one um, focused on um, strength training for female referees, um, soccer referees. And then she's also on the board of the Women's Sports Museum. So we talk about that. I have her tell you about how that came about, where they're at in the process of getting this really cool idea off the ground and how you guys can all get involved. Um, So I hope you really enjoy this. I thought it was a ton of fun. I knew nothing about the refereeing world, nothing. And so this kind of opened my eyes and um, I hope it opens yours as well. So please enjoy this interview with Christina Uncle. Hi, Christina. Hi, Bobby Sue. How are you? I am great. How are you, my friend? Great. Hanging in. So why don't we start at the beginning? And how did you fall in love with sports? Got it. So I fell in love with sports in probably a weirder way than others. Uh, For food? Um, (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) Exactly. So um, I'm trying to 
trying to figure out how I can make a long story short. And I'll just tell the story. Uh, it's fine. Yeah. So uh, my family, uh, soccer is always blood uh, from kind of the Latino Hispanic uh, side of it. But my brother is about a little more than a year and a half older than me, probably two years older than me. And he was playing soccer and I was too young to play soccer. And uh, at the end of the day, right, when you're a young kid, you're playing soccer, you get those, you know, snacks at the end, which are usually gushers and the Capri Sun, et cetera. And my brother would not share his gushers with me. So I was actually hell bent on starting to play soccer so that I can get the gushers at the end of the game. So when I mean I, my, my love for sports started on food, um, that's what I mean by that. So I was driven into sports because I wanted gushers. I didn't really come from an affluent family, so gushers was, a, uh, was never purchased. We couldn't afford it. So it was a, it was a luxury item, let me put it that way. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, we have talked a lot about food on here. Uh, yeah, my... Uh, uh, my good friend Whitney Holtzman it, and I went on a little diatribe about snacks one day. So, so I, I get it. Um, <laughs> and, and so uh, you started playing and you were kind of good, huh? Well, yeah, I started playing, uh, then it kind of really fell into it. So yes, I'm still motivated every Saturday to get up and get some gushers and, you know, the frozen, uh, orange slices. Those are the best. Um, <laughs> but really, really, it kind of came into this, I don't know, there was some excitement with, you know, uh, being able to physically accomplish something right into, I mean, yeah, I, personally, my own brain, I competed against my brother, but that's the little competitive side of me. But there was some adrenaline and some drive. It's just playing the sport, hearing the cheering, um, you know, being able to accomplish something you couldn't do, whether it's dribbling at first or juggling the ball. I don't know. I really like the teamwork element uh, associated with it and just some mental achievements you got when you could physically do something. Um. Oddly enough, one of your one of your multiple careers that you have right now, you started on the path to it when you were 10. Can you tell us the story about how you got into becoming a ref? Yes. So um, once again, there will be food mentioned in this story. Um <laughs> <laughs> so long story short yeah playing right so for me on the refereeing side of it uh, I played first and uh while I was playing as everybody does which is unhealthy when you really think about it is I was yelling at the referee during the game and it, kind of what's present now is yelling at the referee my coach was a referee um and he told me I had to stop yelling because I didn't know the laws of the game and I sounded ignorant Um, so my choice was either stop yelling and keep playing or go take the referee course, learn the laws of the game and continue yelling. So of course I picked the latter. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to keep yelling. So I was like, all right, fine. I'll take this course. Um, and so, yeah, I took the referee course. Obviously you, you learn, you think, you know, everything, but as a player, you really don't know the laws of the game. Uh, as I say, trust me, we just had a law change about three years ago and, I implemented it recently in the past year at the highest levels and the players on the field didn't even know what it was. Um, there's an offside rule about retaking the ball on your side of the field if there's a touch, but I don't want to bore you with the rule. Um, but you really don't realize the rules until you're actually studying them. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, I took the course, continued yelling. And then, um, when I would do some of the small side of games starting out, right, you do the under sixes and the under eight age groups. Um, you know, I was 10 years old. I was getting about 15, $20 a game, which is great money for a 10 year old back in the days. And in between I would sneak into the concession stand and eat all the nachos and Skittles and soda that I wanted. So Wait. I told you this food associated there too. <laughs> so they let a 10 year old ref like a six and eight year old game. Yep. So I believe the age group is now for referees. I think the entry point now from what I heard was 12, but back in, Oh gosh, I want to say 99. I don't know when I was 10, but I'm, I'm assuming 97 or something. I was born in 87. So uh, yeah, it was 10 years old back in the day. That's, that is so phenomenal. And for really a different reason than I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway. So (laughs) I mean, my my thinking in, on that is like how great to start the pipeline of referees at such an early age, because inevitably, you know, you, you're going to need more. And mm-hmm. if you're allowing young girls to do it, then then now you've got a pipeline of women who are mm-hmm. referees and you don't see that in other sports, right? You don't see that in hockey or basketball or in, I mean, God, in football, like mm-hmm. American football, you don't see that. And and that's one of the issues is there's no pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's pretty fantastic. FIFA doesn't do a lot of things well. And that's, that one's <laughs> good. I like that uh, one. Yeah, so there's there's kind of a breakdown <laughs> with respect to the soccer world. <laughs> so there is FIFA, which is the international governing body, um, which you know has the rules. Uh, then there's IFAB, um, and then there is US Soccer. So kind of similar what is to IFAB. Others. IFAB is oh, I'm gonna get killed for not. What is the general? What is uh, it? So yeah, it's International Football Association Board. So they're the ones responsible for the laws of the game. which is actually writing the laws of the game okay. and then FIFA implements the laws of the game. So they're the organization that implements it. So it's two separate in, uh, organizations. So that's the international level. And then what U.S. soccer does, um, is U.S. soccer is approved by FIFA and is recognized essentially as the governing, um, the governing sport to go ahead and administer soccer, similar to other, you know, USOC kind of organizations. And um, so U.S. soccer is actually one directly responsible for the certifications of referees in the United States. Um, so good um, job, U.S. soccer. I know. I was going to say, well, I'm like, why am I breaking that down for you? No, but that's now good. I then I can take back my praise of FIFA. It's fine. Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> I won't get into it. Um, I'll be respectful. I might, I, I'm not allowed to speak on either of those behalves. <laughs> of course. Um, no, so that's really cool. And I think that that's really fun. It, it also, I mean, so you... S- you know, gushers being a luxury item. And so coming from a not well-to-do family, I'm guessing you becoming a lawyer wasn't really in people's minds. You know what? It, it was in my folks' minds, my parents, my mom and my dad. So I am truly um, blessed by having been in a family where we did not have means um, without knowing that because I, had, I, I grew up in a very loving family. So I do not take that. And I'm a loving family, but a family that 
always told me I could do and be whatever it is I wanted to do or be, regardless of, you know, gender or ethnicity or, you know, uh, socioeconomics or anything of that fact. So uh, in a way, I was a little bit ignorant to all of that stuff until yeah. honestly, until I grew up, until um, I realized that there were uh, barriers and restrictions. But um, my folks are, um, both of their parents uh, came to the United States. My dad's from Guatemala, my mom's from Honduras, and they came to the United States and they brought their families over. Um, uh, through the Boston, I guess there's a legal office, et cetera, over there for uh, immigration. And um, their parents came here to do a legacy, to bring their family over, to give them better living. And so same thing with my folks. Um, when they moved over here, when they were teenagers, that was, you know, their focus. And uh, go figure two, Hispanics from Central America meet in Boston. That that sounds like a bad joke. Um, no, seriously, but- people from Boston meet other people from Boston in other cities <laughs> and get married all the time. I've I've seen it happen. It's so weird. It is. I'm like, oh, but yeah, no, I mean, yeah, my parents, uh, college, they hadn't graduated college, but my dad entered the military. He fixed helicopters. Uh, so we were stationed in Coronado when that's where I was born. And, um, yeah, my parents did everything and anything they could to put me in, uh, uh, good schools and to, uh, giving me opportunities. Um, and that I am eternally grateful for because, um, and the, you know, the support, because I, like I said, I grew up pretty ignorant thinking I could be anything I wanted to be. And one mentor, um, a boss of my mom's who works, she is currently the uh, chief legal officer for Lee Memorial Health Hospital Systems down here in Fort Myers. Um, and she was basically kind of the role model. So I, I saw how she treated people and acted and, you know, what her legal profession was. And nobody told me I couldn't. So. Um, yes, I am first generation, uh, us American and, um, uh, yeah, only one to go and graduate from college. And I mean, my, my sister now has too, but, uh, to get a professional career. So that, that comment, yes, you're right. Probably at the end of the day, it's, it's not necessarily expected, but, uh, for my family it was, which was yeah. awesome. Yeah. Do you think, um, do you think having gone through the the course on all the laws and rules of soccer helped kind of create a little baseline because rules and like constitutions and stuff in sports is mm-hmm. just as freaking complicated as it is at a government level. Yes. Um, and do you think that helped give you that like base of like, oh, this could be fun. Plus, you also already got to start yelling at people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, um, I, it is because I have kind of explored this thought process this to, you know, this attraction to the law um, from a referee perspective slash from a legal perspective. And I, I think I've, I don't know if I've nailed it, but I think I've kind of summed it down to saying that I'm attracted to the concept of justice um, and right with justice obviously comes laws, but the, equal, the, the concept of what's fair. Right. There is a difference between breaking a law clearly, whether you're right or you're wrong. Um, and then there's what we call, as you know, uh, instead of a statute case law, right, <laughs> where yeah. you have a set of rules and then considerations and implement. And so I think I like that feeling. Um, I was a little kid who kind of like stood up when people bullied other people. It just it just wasn't fair. Um, and I think that was grounded definitely in the referee world. Um, and one of the reasons I also started refereeing was because, you know, I had a referee on my game who didn't care. Clearly he was going through the motions and I'm like, you know what, you're getting paid and it's just not fair. All right. I can do a better job. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of it's just grounded on justice and the refereeing I think did definitely help with the legal, um, kind of the same concepts that you just mentioned. 
Um, so can you take us through the process of being a ref? I mean, for people, I'll have done an intro of you <clears throat> like that I cut in, but for people who are listening um, and to set this up for you, you know, you're one of three American women to have the FIFA ref badge. Um, so this is clearly a big deal. How do you go, like, t- take us through the process to get to that point? So you first start um, kind of, yeah, because it is interesting. It's if you equate the refereeing to something similar as to like the athletic world, um, you start somewhere, right? So we start with a general certification, which could be in the United States. We Our grading system starts at grade nine and kind of works backwards. So nine, eight, seven, six, five. Um, then I think four is considered a national candidate or sorry, national referee. And then no national candidate, three is a national referee. And then one a referee, center referee, which means I specialize in the center, uh, or I do a fourth official if I'm not in the center and then a FIFA grade two, which is an assistant referee and assistant referees will only be assistant referees. Um, so it gets specialized the higher up you go, but you all start at the grade nine or grade eight, um, depends what state you're from. And I started grade eight and you just really for the initial. So I started at 10 and it wasn't until about the age of 18 did I even realize there was a ladder to climb within, even in the referee <laughs> world. Right. So it's, it's dorky, but there's a ladder to climb. And, um, and probably the first time I realized it is, uh, when you start going to tournaments, um, whether it's on a selection basis or you apply for it and then you get selected day we used to wear blazers like uh blue suits and oh, gray God. pants i know and so they had an event in my backyard that you know i just as a local referee i volunteered and then i saw all these people who had been selected for it i guess it's, it was equivalent to back in the day like president's cup or state cup at the youth level and i was actually like i was like mock well first i didn't have a suit because i was 17 who has a suit when they're 17 um but i was actually Doogie hauser Doogie <laughs> hauser has the suit well <laughs> That I do not hang out with Doogie Hauser back in the day. I probably do now, but not now. But not then. Um, <laughs> now I'm thinking about the Doogie Hauser to my life right now. So uh, I'm digressing again. But uh, yeah, so it was kind of one of those things, my first thing, where it was like a little bit of a shock factor. Why are these people in a suit? This is weird. It's refereeing. Show up in jeans and a t-shirt. Um, and that was my first foray into the fact that there was a climbing ladder. There was, you could go and, you know, take uh, further classes for certifications for higher levels. You have to qualify through uh, assessments and fitness tests and really start climbing the ladder. And that starts at a grade seven, which shows initial interest in, you know, uh, um, getting higher learning. And then grade six, uh, which is a state level, they keep changing the stuff. So I don't know what it is. Uh, and a grade five, which just really indicates you are looking to move up. Um, higher, quicker youth games, adult amateur games, uh, and hopefully getting some foresight into the professional world and the professional designers. So, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of how you start. You move up a lot's changed since I started, um, a lot's changed since, Oh gosh, someone told me PRO. Uh, all right, here's another great organization to throw in so that you're fully confused. If you're listening is, uh, the professional referee organization pro, um, is what we call it is the organization signing referees in the United States to the professional games, which is major league soccer, uh, NWSL, uh, which is national women's soccer league. Those are the first two divisions, first divisions in men and women's and then USL, which is United soccer league, which is second division men. So pro is responsible for assigning those people. Um, 
And that's something new that got implemented about five years and has now created an opportunity and a path for people to actually become professional soccer referees and actually have contracts um, to referee as opposed to being an independent contractor the entire time, which was pretty much the entire time of my career. Uh, when you refereed, you're just an independent contractor. Um, now you can get contracts if so. Um, yeah, I hope I confused you with that new organization. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how do you move up levels? Yes. So grade seven, you move up by taking just a class. And like I said, some of this could change and it's all on U.S. soccer. But if you just took a class, a higher class, aside from your annual registration, you moved up to grade seven. And then to move up to grade six, five and so on, you would take another class um, for higher level learning. And you'll also have to do assessments, meaning you'd have an assigner uh, come to your game that you would end up paying. Right. Um, to Hopefully it's a competitive enough game to be graded on and there's rubrics and criteria as to, you know, the level of difficulty and how you performed on it. And at the end of the day, they will grade you. They'll tell you how you did. They'll give you some pros and some cons, some room for improvements and whether you're qualified or not to move up a badge level. Um, so that's how it works. Um, there's different numbers of assessments you have to get for each grade. Um, and then when you get to the point of becoming applying for a national referee, um, which means just generally that, you know, if you're a state referee, you can still referee outside your state. Uh, national referee just means a higher indication of competency level. Uh, to do that, they technically look at a portfolio in general, the games you've done. So basically, you keep a roster of all the games that you've done, all your assessments um, that you had, uh, as well as uh, kind of potential for growth, performance. And they kind of take a look at that and see if to compare it to like a, the U.S. soccer national team. They'll look at the portfolios and determine if that's someone they quote unquote want on their team at the national referee level. Um, so that's how you move up assessments and then, tests. and then the mm -hmm. FIFA badge. How do you get that FIFA badge? So U.S. soccer has something we, uh, in short, we call it Refco, but it's for the referee committee and the referee committee is comprised. Oh gosh. I can't recall how many people now. Um, it, it just changed again with the number of people, but it operates under U.S. soccer. Um, and I, don't know, I think it's like 10 to 15 people. I can't recall how many people are in it, but they select out of the national referee pool who they would like to represent the United States at the international levels. So um, that you get by um, a good performance on the field, uh, a good performance off the field in the sense of, you know, obviously personality, representation. Um, and then uh, I hate using the word luck because I believe big and about creating your own luck, but a little bit of luck, right? So yeah. having been seen um, continuously, having performed at the highest levels that you could and the potential for being able to perform at the highest levels and potential for also, you know, having enough years in your uh, referee career to represent the United States on the international level, because similar to the players and the national teams, we have what we call cycles. Mm -hmm. um, and the cycles are four-year cycles, meaning, you know, the, the, the epitome being uh, a World Cup. And so uh, they're very big about developing that referee for that World Cup. Um, some people think we just roll up in our cars and go referee a game, <laughs> even at the highest levels, and that's not the reality. Um, in the cycles, they will select a group of referees and work with them for about two, three years before uh, a major World Cup or um, the youth World Cups leading up to it. That's so cool. There's so much about this that is just blowing my mind. One is why aren't you a full-time ref? Oh, um, so yeah, like I said, the, the, the ability to be a full-time referee um, didn't truly exist until recently. Um, one, because it's an independent contractor and you have no health benefits. And right. if you got hurt, then bam. I had a baby. 
or had a baby. Yeah. There's no, uh, there's no maternity leave or compensation for it. So, um, that was new. And even on the contracts right now, there's still not pro, um, has like, for example, assistant referees and pro, um, don't have contracts. They're still independent contractors. So, and recently I would say the past three, maybe four years, um, they just started their own players uh, referee union and collective bargaining agreements, et cetera. So it's still in its infancy. So the ability to be a quote unquote full-time referee is possible, but there's not many that are given out at the current moment. Um, with obviously soccer growing and it get getting, getting bigger, it truly is a reality that one could be a, a, a full-time uh, referee or even a part-time referee uh, and get a contract from potentially pro uh, FIFA doesn't have contracts, but uh, our professional referee organization does. So yeah, I'm kind of in that weird limbo world of that group of referees who have a career. <laughs> um, you have a career because you got to put food on the table, right? Uh, anytime you get injured, you're essentially unable to work and you know, they'll go on to the next person. So uh, yeah, I'm in that world where I have a career and then there's a potential opportunity for growth, but you know, is it, is it worth trading them out? Uh, right. Not too sure, but have been offered a contract, so right. I'm not making that decision right now. <laughs> uh, hint, hint, pro. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about something that um, I overheard slash was standing with you as you were having a discussion. Whoa, something's on fire. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was a, a fire truck going by, um, rather close to my apartment, actually. As I say, if it stays, like get out of the building. Well, I mean, <laughs> I also ripped down my, <laughs> my smoke alarms recently and disconnected them from the hard wiring. And I was convinced that that was going to send an alarm somewhere. And it's because <laughs> the batteries were making it chirp and blah, blah. I know I need to get them back up there, but I need the stupid batteries and I'm too short. I don't need, I don't need the hate on this. Um, <laughs> Although if a, a tall, handsome gentleman would like to come over and help me, I would be accepting of that help. Um, I understand my limitations and I'm okay with a little bit of help from time to time. Um, so you and a couple of other women who happen to be referees in uh, one in basketball, and I can't remember if the other one is soccer as well. Um, mm -hmm. But you were all talking about how, because. Um, uh, one of them is hurt right now or recovering mm -hmm. from being hurt, but how um, you guys are athletes too and how you have to maintain your physical um, stamina, you know, your fitness level has to be, you know, it maybe doesn't have to be exactly as the players, but it's not too far off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, yeah, go figure, right. We go to an event and the referees find each other and we're all dorks and we're dorking out about the different referee world. <laughs> I was, I, I mean, and I was all dorked out because I'm like, there were three female refs around me. This is fantastic. I have a podcast. <laughs> I have a podcast. Definitely. I know you should have just put the hot mic on us. Um, we would have started rifting, but we also had a glass of wine, so that would have been bad. Um, <laughs> But yeah, no, it truly, and you know, the mentality and the approach of a referee, not even at the highest levels, but just at any level is uh, this, this mindset change where people, you know, don't realize until they start watching the referees that we have to be athletes out there. Um, what we're doing is an athletic endeavor. What people expect and demand uh, is for, at least for the center referees, is to get out of the center circle, is to 
to move to what we say in our world is you're always fighting for the best position and the best angle. Um, because at the end of the day, you could be, you can have proximity, you could be close to the play, but if you have a horrible angle and it's that split of a second, you can miss a game critical decision. Um, so the fitness component is incredible incredibly huge in what we do, especially in the referee side, because um, we are generally supposed to be within 10 to 15 yards, right? Just a general rule of thumb, 10 to 15 yards of play at all times. And with all due respect, if someone kicks the ball and it <laughs> all the way from the defensive half to, uh, you know, a, like a, a sprinting on, right? Uh, Alex Morgan, right? You got to have the ability to one, anticipate and two, be able to get on your horse and catch some of the fastest players in the world. So I was refereeing Sam Kerr from Australia, the, this, uh, back uh, a couple months ago at the tournament of nations and talk about someone with speed. You could just go from zero to a hundred. Um, that's what, that's what we have to train for. We have to train to keep up with these athletes to um, be able to be there for the game, be there for them um, and uh, be able to always be in the best position. So it is, it's a continual um, pursuit for true athleticism. We do get injured as the athletes do. It's it's funny. Uh, yeah, the, the, the NBA referee, uh, Lauren and I, because uh, I just recently pulled a, a hammy, uh, first time I ever did it. So I'm trying to navigate that. And her and I are now in this fun text chain called uh, hashtag team long-term goals. So we're both trying to uh, get through our injuries without rushing them and getting re-injured. So the same kind of mental fights that athletes have, um, we do as well too, because one, we have to be in our optimal performance level to stay with, uh, with these international and professional athletes who also put in the work, um, uh, and also make sure that we do it in a proper way where we have high athletic performance and we're primed on game days, um, specifically with proper training, proper nutrition, uh, the mindset component is huge. It's something that I recently added to my game this past March. I, I work with, uh, Dr. Philip Nikeo, um, on the, what I call mental conditioning. My friend calls therapy. I call mental conditioning. Um, and <laughs> how do we, how do we perform at a high level when we have a split of a second decision to make a game critical call with no replay, um, with 20,000 people in the stadium, obviously all, uh, heckling you and, you know, at the heat of the moment, um, and to rely on our instincts and our, our skills to do so. So yeah, it's, it, it's fun. Um, there's times I do question why I'm up at five a.m. in the morning training before everybody else is awake, um, to get it in before everybody needs me. But when I step out onto that field, which I know the other referees there that night would say the same, when you step onto that field and you step on a field with 10, 15,000 people and athletes at the highest level and hearing, you know, the FIFA anthems and, uh, you know, um, it's just all the, all the pomp and circumstances walking out and just the, I guess the adrenaline rush. It's, it's, it's definitely worth it. Definitely worth the long hours of training and finding yourself on a track in the middle of Saturday while it's blazing hot here in Florida at 98 degrees and still, you know, pounding it out. Um, it's worth it. What kind of training do you end up doing? Yeah. So, um, me specifically, I focus a lot on strength training and explosive uh, movement. Um, so it's a mix of obviously strength and conditioning. I, uh, I'm a very, very big believer. Um, and it's only been recently too, which is sad because I feel like if I would have implemented this even before I played college soccer, uh, I would have been a better athlete is the actual strength component of it. So um, I've actually hired specifically a strength and conditioning coach, uh, Liz Lowe, uh, who also owns Scorch Fitness, and her and I have really kind of put together a, a program in order to pass the men's fitness test. But the biggest component of that, which was really not known to me and not um, sadly known to a lot of, you know, 
women in general slash women referees is the physical strength component of learning how to properly deadlift, how to get into the racks, um, you know, defeating that fear that, you know, stereotype that you're going to get big. Um, cause you have to have be physically strong in order to be able to explode out of the gate. Um, so that's a lot of the stuff I focus is on the strength side is actually free, free weights, getting into the racks. Um, and then the conditioning side, uh, ours is a little bit different than maybe like, for example, Lauren in the NBA who has, you know, a lot more sprinting movement, um, or, or ours is more stamina with uh, explosive sprints and more interval training is probably yeah. a better way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and your, your newfound love of deadlifting has brought you <laughs> to a, Yet another business? Yes. Welcome to uh, an entrepreneurial attorney. Um, (laughs) You have like five careers right now. It's so fun. It it, it is fun. Sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, if I just focused on one, but then knowing my personality, um, I would get bored. Uh, So I got to have a couple of things up in the air uh, to keep myself excited. But yeah, the... um, uh, like I kind of mentioned, it was, it's a new mindset in the sense of, uh, uh, so Liz is my business partner. She owns Scorch, uh, fitness and, uh, she had this and I'll let her tell you one day about it, but, uh, what she would call the deadlift effect is essentially it's teaching people how to be physically strong. Um, and once you teach someone how to be physically strong, everything else follows the mental, uh, follows, uh, confidence follows, decision-making follows, um, et cetera. So, uh, that is something that we have started, um, and is it organically growing very quickly. Um, we're focusing right now on just women soccer referees, but have had interest from a lot of other different organizations, um, about teaching people how to physically be strong and how to properly do a quote unquote deadlift, um, at least, um, changing the dialogue with regard to strength training and, uh, really kind of kicking out a lot of the myths and rumors and thought processes, um, in the, uh, fitness world with regard to strength training, um, not just for an athlete, but for just the general population as well. As like, she likes to say general pop. So I feel cool when I say that gen pop, gen pop. Yep. Yeah. That's from orange is the new black. Um, and ah. you know, just crime. Um, <laughs> oh, I do civil law. I do civil law, everyone. Don't ask me criminal family. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, I'm like, I can do a contract. Uh, <laughs> so what is the service or product that, that you all provide? Um, a mindset. Um, so the service essentially is providing strength and conditioning programs to the, uh, or the product, let me clarify, is providing a strength and conditioning, customized strength and conditioning programs to the women referees at the current moment. Uh, the service essentially is providing a community of changing the dialogue, changing the mindset, changing the culture, really making this a movement about not only learning how to be physically strong and being athletic in the, in the referee world, um, but more importantly, having that transcend to off the pitch. So a soccer field is called a pitch. So off the pitch um, into career life and decisions, right? Because at the end of the day, people are always like, you know, yeah, you know, if I just pursue refereeing and put my whole heart into it, I've unfortunately seen way too many colleagues who who've burnt out or who've neglected their personal lives or their actual regular careers um, for this, you know, drive to get to this weird referee. We get you get in the referee world, you get brainwashed. By the way, um, obviously. That, 
obviously, yeah, <laughs> that there has to be a really healthy balance in everything you do in life with your relationships um, in order for you to be able to perform, right? Because at the end of the day, if your foundation isn't steady, then there's no way you can be able to perform at the highest level for so long. So the deadlift effect is essentially that. It's changing this mindset, teaching people how to be physically strong. Um, right now we have, we're working with over 230 I go figure. I created this Facebook group. I just organically created this Facebook group. And within two months we had over 230 women soccer referees in it. And we're specifically providing customized training workouts to over 85 women. That's amazing. Um, it is. It's been really, really cool. And it really came down to this thing of like, I really wanted to help other women's soccer referees. Didn't yeah. really know how, don't really have time. Can't watch everyone's game and give them foul misconduct direction and assess them. One, because I'm struggling to keep up with, you know, assessing all my games, plus looking at game footage. We do a lot of prep, by the way, before games. We watch a lot of game footage and, you know, learn coaches and players and tactics, et cetera. Um, so it was Whoa. actually. Wait, back up. What? Okay. Um, yes. So when you go to referee a game, obviously you got to be not just prepared physically and yourself and knowing the laws, but you should also be prepared to how the teams play. What's the style? How do they perform? Who are some key players? I'll use the word key players because that's a nicer way to say it. Um, (laughs) uh, right. Are you going to walk into a game where it's going to be a quick play? Do they do more possession oriented? You know, what's the best positioning? Um, you know, what's the potential matchups in the game? Uh, yeah, you look into a lot of that stuff and watch a lot of footage prior to a match. Holy so crap. That, yeah, so that when your team, the referee team actually has what we call pregame, which is a meeting prior to where we kind of talk about the game. We talk about, like I said, key key players, you know, key strategies. Uh, you know, what does this game mean essentially in the sense of points or is this for playoff or, you know, is this their second or third matchup? Is there, you know, a rivalry going on here? Um, yeah, we do all of that stuff right before a game. Nobody thinks it. Like I said, everyone thinks we just show up in a car put on our referee gear out of the back, uh, the back of the trunk and just show up. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. This is why we're having this discussion because uh, you randomly drop little nuggets like that and then keep going. That's incredible information for people to have because I don't, I don't know. I never knew that. I actually, now I wonder what our refs do. Oh yeah. Your refs. Oh, of course. I, sorry. So like in a dorky way, I like learning what the NFL referees right and the NBA referees do and they do the same thing. And so that's kind of one thing because I've never met NBA referees. So Lauren was the first NBA referee I met and that's what we were talking about. So like, when you do this, do you do this? Yeah. Right. So you go into a travel quite a bit. Uh, when I go to like a venue, like I've been so many places, so many amazing cities and I don't really get to enjoy them because like, for example, if I fly into, uh, I don't know, a Boston, Seattle or New York city or Portland kind of area, and it's a really cool walkable city. I can't walk that city cause I got a game that day right. <laughs> or the day before, later. So, you know, you never want to be in a scenario where you're not prepared. So it's the same thing for them, right? We get there, we get to the hotel, we relax. We might do some game prep prior to meaning just some short sprints to get the blood flowing. Um, the night before, but at the end of the day, we basically just hang out at the hotel until it's game day. Um, and they do the exact same, uh, NFL referees do the exact same. You get in uh, major league baseball umpires do the same, you know, you get in, you relax, you get ready for the game, you wait all day, do the game. So everyone has rituals. It's kind of funny, especially when you have, we, we do roommates, um, for the referee world, you have roommates at the games. Um, so you kind of get to know people because they're repeat players, right? It's the same people at the top level. So you get to know each other's rituals. Some people like to sleep for six hours before the game. Other people like to work up to the minute before the game. So, um, yeah, oh my God. yeah, there's, there's a whole nother world, my dear, a whole nother world. Well, so, so then 
Then this brings me to the question, wait, and like you guys talk about like, okay, this is for, you know, a championship. So maybe we're just going to let them play, right? Something like that. Along yeah. the lines, ish. Uh, ish. Ish. Or you say, let's keep this game really tight so we make sure, you know, there's not, you know, it doesn't get too physical. Or, you know, once we realize they can accept this level of play, we can release, you know, uh, maybe the foul selection, the bar gets set a little bit higher. So, yeah, it, it really does depend upon the teams if they have the ability, uh, skill slash, you know, temperament to be able to play in a certain level. Um, this then just brings me back to that Stupid, stupid man during the Serena Williams match. Oh, I was like, which one? Do you, fair, fair. This is Sorry. one of those weeks. Sorry, everyone. It's been a couple. It's been. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I want like he was just like, Meh, I don't care. We're just going to mess everything up. Anyway, we're going to move on from that because I'm just babbling. Everyone listening knows know. that I was upset about that. Um, but I, I'm, I was actually, and I haven't fact checked this, but somebody told me that that was his first ever uh, women's match he ever refereed. But I'll just leave it at that. I haven't fact checked that, but I was I, I was a bit surprised. I think but. that's accurate. Okay, thank you, because I had heard that, and I'm like, well, that's really different. But anyhow, yeah, I'll I don't just, think I'll I reserve would, my comment for uh, off the mic. I don't those. think they <laughs> would do that for that match. Um, but that's anyway. why that, that's why that caught me by surprise too. I was yeah. like, huh. This episode is brought to you by the San Diego State Sports MBA program, a globally focused MBA that prepares students to work just about anywhere in the sports industry. As we record this, it's the week of October 1st, 2018, and the sports MBA students are, as they typically tend to be, exceptionally busy. To give you an idea of student life in the sports MBA program, here's a look at this week's calendar. Two sessions of integrated marketing communications, including a case study about Under Armour, Two sessions of strategy featuring student presentations on Bayern Munich's expansion into China. One session of a sports business analytics class that has the students analyzing Olympic decathlon results to learn about variables impacting athlete performance. On top of their coursework, students will have a guest lecturer with superstar sports MBA alumna Jen Null, who will take students on a deep dive into digital marketing, focusing on drip campaigns and SEO. To finish the week on Friday morning, Sports MBA will be host to an interactive lecture with the Capener Brothers, two longtime sports business entrepreneurs who co-founded Above the Rim in the early 90s. Sound like a fun week? There is still one month left to start an application to be in classes in January 2019. To learn more, visit sdsu.edu slash sports MBA. That's sdsu.edu slash sports MBA. Speaking of the balance that your company helps with um, Mm -hmm. and relationships, is it weird for FIFA refs to marry each other? Oh, um... (laughs) <laughs> I was like, how do I answer that? Because if I answer yes, then that makes us weird. Uh, <laughs> so it, um, it, it's different. So yeah. So uh, you and your husband obviously met through refing. Correct. So we met through refereeing. Um, it's funny because uh, we actually kept it on the download. Like nobody knew we were actually dating. Um, nobody knew we were actually a couple until we were engaged. 
Um, and then go figure I was playing professional, uh, not professional, I was playing club, uh, Ugh. college soccer at that time and go figure I knew all the referees at that time um, and the referees on my game saw my husband Ted sitting between my parents and they're like hey Ted and then that's kind of how they figured out we were a couple and then they all figured out we were actually engaged but you know it's kind of your it's it's your work atmosphere so you, I, right. we didn't really want to bring any of that juju like what happens if we broke up and that would make like all our colleagues and peers would think like it'd be weird to be safe friends with yeah right. so we kind of kept it really hardcore the down low until we were essentially married and you know and then, then, then they go from there. But, um, yeah, no, we, we, oh gosh, we've been married for 10 years now. Um, and so, yeah, I'm trying to think there was no other FIFA referee couple, um, until recently, my friend, Anne Marie Kylie, um, who is from New Zealand, just married her husband. He just got on the panel this year. This is his first year. Um, and Anne Marie's done, I think maybe two world cups, one world cup. So there is now another FIFA couple out there, um, in New Zealand, but yeah, aside from that, there's, there's, there's no other, I don't know if there has been before. I I've been told there isn't, but once again, I don't know how to fact check that. (laughs) (laughs) When you and I were, um, were talking kind of before I started recording, um, you made a comment about, Oh, if, you know, when I tweeted, I, I said something about the uncles, you, I'd find all, all sorts of interesting things. So, (laughs) what is it with soccer fans having uh attached themselves to you guys oh gosh i don't know right so it's 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 probably like um hmm trying to figure out the best politically (laughs) correct way to say this um everybody likes a scapegoat. I don't know. I don't know the best way to say this, but, um, I, I really don't know. I think, I think there is, like you said, there is, uh, when people find out there's two of us, uh, that's intriguing in and of itself. Um, so right. right, They'll sometimes, so I do a video, uh, it's called VAR, but video assistant referee for the major league soccer. So I think that's been kind of the more exciting component where people are like, Hey, there's two uncles. Like how, you know, we don't do games together. Oh gosh. Social media would go crazy on that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, let me put it this way. There's a lot of keyboard warriors out there. So I, I check not, I try, I try not to check social media. Uh, someone wants to tase me in Houston. That's a different story, but, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. So maybe, uh, what do they call soccer hooligans? They call it like, right. There's a lot of hooligans out there. There's a lot of people who are very passionate about their sport. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Sometimes people just kind of like to make people the number one enemy. Yeah. I'm not really too sure because 99.9% of it is factually incorrect, but so eh, it comes with the territory. How does it make you feel? Um, well, I mean, I think naturally when anyone is kind of, uh, uh, you know, spewing things that are factually incorrect or just, just completely derogatory or, or hurtful. I mean, at the end of the day, it's all hurtful at the, at the end of the day, you know, you can't, once again, you, you kind of put it in perspective of who's making the comments, right? So you should only be harmed by people you respect. Um, so it, it, it just, I kind of sit there and I'm like, none of that's logical anyways, but, um, God, you're so much healthier than I am. Oh, no. It's, well, you know what? In this weird, weird world, something must have happened when I was a small kid because who wants to go and step into a field when they're a minor and be verbally abused by a bunch of strangers when you're working your butt off um, and being threatened all the time, right? So uh, my first 
game my mom attended that I was doing amateur soccer. We used to call it uh, uh, Death Valley um, down in Miami, <laughs> meaning if uh, someone, if you, if you got shot, no one would hear your screams. Um, but they were some really fun adult amateur soccer and you would learn how to grow a pair there. Um, and uh, it's kind of a, just do what you can to get the game in and not get killed. Um, go figure, my mom shows up to it. And uh, yeah, that was the only game I've ever been physically threatened where the guy came back with potentially a gun in the van and the teens had to oh surround us and usher us off. Yeah. But uh, aside from that, like everything's been verbal abusement since 10, that sounds weird. Um, but that's the reality of it. So if you were to just do a general search and the numbers are alarming with just referees in general, not just soccer, but every sport is the, is a significant shortage of referees um, in every sport because of the verbal abuse. I used to do some mentoring out in Palm Beach counties um, when I was in college there. And we would work with a group of the new young referees who I think at that age were probably between the ages of 10 and 18. And, you know, they're running around out there doing a U10, U12 game, working their little butts off, you know, figuring it out. And you would just have parents on the side just, you know, berating these kids. And I yeah. would have to turn to the left and I'd be like, excuse me, sir, stop yelling at my kid. I mean, mind you, he wasn't my kid, but I would say, stop yelling at my kid. And they're like, I'm not yelling at your kid. I'm like, well, yes, you are. And they're like, well, I'm not yelling at the other team. I go, you're yelling at the referee, like trying to put it in perspective that people are verbally abusing minors. Like that's, I I don't know about you and me, but that sounds like it's breaking the law somehow. And thankfully Florida does have a law about uh, abuse and uh, physical abuse and assault on an official um, in the statute. So it's actually, Oh God, I forgot what type of, the lowest felony degree it is. Like I said, I don't do criminal law, but um, yeah, I, I guess since, since an early age, I've had to, you know, take verbal abuse right now, right. in the new dawn of age, the social media abuse and really, you know, you compartmentalize it and understand it's not you personally, because one, they don't know you, um, but two, it's all at the uniform. Um, right. So, you know, you step outside and, you know, no one's going to physically yell at you or verbally yell at you. Um, so you just kind of couch it into the uniform. It's probably not a healthy approach, but some people don't get to yell at anything. So <laughs> kind of like me at 10 years old, I was yelling at the ref. So maybe it's just this ability to, you know, channel these inner uh, frustrations in their personal life. Um, so yeah, I guess if I could be some therapy for them in that respect, sure. Why not? <laughs> I, it's probably helpful that your husband has a similar, you know, side hustle, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so he gets it because he's got the same coming at him. Yeah. So actually he is one of the few full-time uh, contract Whoa. referees with pro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he's had a, he was, I think initially, initially a part-time referee. Um, so now he's a full-time contract he's had for maybe two, three years. It was funny because when he came to me and he said, Hey, should I take it? They're offering me a full-time contract and he, he owns his own company as well. And he negotiates, he's not an attorney. Um, but he negotiates land lease agreements and extensions and all that stuff for uh, another company and his contracting, which is his full company and what he does really for bread and butter. But, um, yeah, when they, they, they approached him, I was like, what's the worst you can do? Take it for a year, not like it, and then go back to your, or still keep your real job. So, uh, yes, he's one of the few people who has a full contract. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the mental side of it, um, he's, pretty more stable and like he doesn't check social media at all uh i just send him things when they're kind of funny um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah like it, it's it's he's been a really good sound bear i mean not just from that but like just life in general and balancing this crazy psycho ref world where we you know we think it's all important and you tell somebody who's not in this world and they're like 
that makes zero sense. I'm like, okay, so I'm not crazy. Um, (laughs) yeah, yeah. We're being in the same world is great, but we're also have a, you know, our biggest focus, right. If we were to put priority for first would obviously, uh, be a family career, um, and then refereeing, um, where some people put refereeing family career and that's obviously not uh, a stable foundation to do it. Well, no, especially with the travel. I mean, yeah, yeah. Travel's a bit nuts. It's, 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 it's kind of a weird, good thing because everybody that I'm friends with knows I'm never in town on the weekend. So I never get asked to do anything. Um, so the few times I am at home where I just want to be at home, everyone assumes I'm not at home. So I don't have to like, you know, deny requests to go do something and feel guilty. Um, (laughs) but, uh, my, my real good friends understand that they may not see me very often, but, uh, yeah, epic text chains. They can't help with that. Yeah. I think that's good. Um, (laughs) okay. So we've hit, well, you're a lawyer by day. Um, and so you went through the whole process of going to law school and surviving that, which is, (laughs) you know, miraculous. And cause it's really annoying, but you went to Stetson, um, which is nearby. And I spoke at Stetson last year. Oh, very cool. Yes. I love Stetson. So, um, yeah, like I said, that mentor uh, of mine, um, Erin McGillicuddy, she actually went to Stetson. So I was always hell bent on going on Stetson, um, probably not for the right, like the full right reasons, but, um, it, it, it was an, it was an awesome Awesome law school to go to. Um, the law school is actually in, um, uh, as you know, in uh, uh, Deland, uh, not Deland, sorry, Gulfport, St. Pete area. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, it was it was a kind of a fun balance too. So I lived in Sarasota, commuted back and forth every day. So I truly treated law school as a career, like my nine to five. Right. Uh, or as you know, not the nine to five, but you know, just high block properly. Right. <laughs> and, and then my mental breaks were the hour drives up and forth. So two hour drives is my mental break. Um, yeah, I really like Stetson. And actually, I didn't think I was going to be doing litigation. I thought I would do more in-house general counsel contract stuff. Um, but Stetson's known um, number one for trial advocacy, number three for legal writing. So they had a very big uh, litigation um, kind of a group with our uh, trial team, ADRs and our mock teams. And they kind of suck you in. And, and, you know, I got my concentration in advocacy there. And I then started going on the litigation track. Um I loved it. So teachers, classes, everything was really great. It was the opposite of what you usually hear where they say, you know, look to your left, look to your right. They're not going to be here next semester. Um, it, it was, it was opposite. People didn't hide. You Only know. Harvard does that. Everyone else is normal. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you walk in and like me, I yeah. read everything before I do stuff. So I read so many books about like how to be successful. In law oh my God. School. Did you read law school confidential? I did. I had that thing like almost, <laughs> This is such a like inside baseball thing. Um, I had that thing like, I mean, like tabbed to death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm embarrassed oh, by myself. Uh, yeah. I was okay. That's why we probably get along. Cause I had read so many books. I knew how to properly highlight the books in different colors or the cases. Right. So you're prepared when they ask you what the ruling is and the factors and consider. Yeah. I, I read all that stuff and it was actually a good thing. Cause I, I tore my ACL twice. And the second time I ended up getting surgery, they ended up doing a micro fracture in my knee. Uh, meaning they just recreating a cartilage in there, or, but I was on crutches, non-weight bearing for six months. And it was, right before law school. It was probably the best thing ever because I got really, really good grades my first year of law school. We both know how important that is. Yeah. Uh, 
And then, then I was able to get back into refereeing physically and then my grades slipped. Uh, <laughs> but I was able to coast on my first year of grades. So yeah, that no, that's cool. great. <laughs> um, I, um, I'm curious about how you ended up not going into sports law. Ah, um, yeah. So, I mean, you, as you also know, everyone's like, oh, sports law. And then you're trying to figure out what the heck sports law means. And sports law really comes down to uh, contracts, business, employment law, and intellectual property for the most part, um, unless you're also going to be representing, you know, on criminal or family matters. Um and, you know, I, I, have heard someone say this before and they say, you know, you only make it big in sports on two different things. One, if you marry into it or two, if you were born into it. Um, and you know, the sports law thing attracted me. It's just, I was really, my husband and I really love Sarasota and there's not many opportunities for sports law career in Sarasota. Sure. Um, and also with the balance of what I was doing refereeing rights, cause I brought that in with me. Uh, before law school, it's uh, kind of a big part of my identity is, uh, you know, going to do maybe a sports law, going into big law, that would be unrealistic with the refereeing component of it. And the refereeing is only, you know, fickle in time. There's a certain time period you can physically do this for. Um, so, yeah, I didn't really, which is kind of funny that I said, you know, I didn't go directly into sports law, but sports law keeps finding me now and by sports law, meaning, you know, just just doing work for athletes, coaches, um, people in the sports industry. Uh, so I've slowly in a weird way, just continue to accumulate clients in that regard. And I'm not resisting it. It's just, it's right. just, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to go. You are directly in sports law because you work, um, for a sports company, but, um, sure. I but know. I mean, I think even just, you know, having, having individual clients that, that happen to have their careers in sports, but it also kind of, I don't know, even though you didn't get directly into it, you've kind of gotten into it with your like eighth job. <laughs> I was like, which one is this one? Spark. Uh... <laughs> yeah. So Spark Advocacy. What what do we got there? Yeah. So Spark Advocacy is actually sports advocacy or Spark stands for sports advocacy, rights and equality. Um, and it kind of came down to rights. So uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of reshifting of the mindset at the end of 2016. Was that when it happened? Yeah. The end of 2016, um, as to different passions I had in my life. Right. And, and one thing that it's, it's kind of a couple of things I reset it on is like, okay, right. You look at your, you know, where do you spend the majority of your money? Right. That's how you can help and identify different things you're passionate about. Cause then you'll see repeat players there. You know, what do I read the most about? What do I post the most about? Um, and you know, what is it that's effortlessly gets me excited and I feel so, and, uh, probably it also helps that I joined a firm that's very big about, you know, giving, um, individuals the access to court. Um, it sounds really cheesy, but, um, truly one's right and access to the court systems is being denied continuously. Um, so that really, really triggered me. And I'm like, okay, passion and what I love doing is giving the people opportunity to have their, you know, their stories and their rights being protected. And that's kind of how Spark um, came about. And I've gotten a couple of uh, clients through that. And I have to be very selective, obviously, just to balance everything. But it's really finding opportunities and ways to be able to advocate on behalf of anyone in sport, really, where their rights um, aren't being properly weighted, um, whether it's, you know, uh, equal pay, equal play kind of a concept, um, 
I don't do any of the kind of the, the sexual harassment, sexual, sexual misconduct cases, but a uh, great referral, um, you know, Nancy Hogshead, I think you uh, make her. Yeah. 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 She's been on. Yeah. And so she does a lot of it. And so I do more on the contract business side and really working with some clients, um, specifically and I always find it falls more with women, uh, women, women in sports. So not just athletes, but coaches where, you know, their voices still, we do a lot of stuff for free and we give out a lot of stuff, which is basically our, our, our talent for free. Uh, without getting properly compensated for it um, or even asking for the proper compensation for it just because there's something in uh, some, some messages or dialogue that we've been grown up or, you know, implicit messages that we should, we should just be grateful for the opportunity. Um, this so is yeah, the general, we, as we, as women, right? Correct. Yeah. We, as women. So I do represent um, some coaches, uh, some female coaches with that regard uh, as to, you know, it kind of turns a little bit into business advice as well, but into, you know, representing them, getting higher contract raises, um, you know, uh, advocating for proper rights, right. Especially if they are for lack of a better term, a whistleblower, right. Um, right. when there's uh, equality issues with regard to, uh, the differences in programs between the men's and women's that are just like clearly not correct. Right. So if you're going to give a stipend for food to the guy, you can't say it's going to be more money for the male program than the female program, because that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Right. right. Just the black and white type of stuff. So, yeah, that, that's really where it stemmed from. And uh, if, uh, so, uh, you know, I haven't found a litigation case that I wanted to take. It's been more negotiation and contracts. But if there's one that comes up that obviously is in a conflict of interest in the soccer world, because I can't really do anything in the soccer world on a legal basis. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would that would definitely intrigue me. Interesting. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you right now are spending pretty much all your time on um and it's how i guess we met because of a, a mutual contact who was like oh my god women's sports museum bobby sue this would you should know each other um so you're on the board of the women's sports museum which is a yet to be constructed mu museum on women's sports and that doesn't exist already no, I know. I've probably said the word fact check a million times on this podcast already, but I'm pretty diligent about making sure before uh, I say something or get involved with something. So this organization and go figure was in my backyard, was in Sarasota. I had seen some media news press release about a women's sports museum that they're looking to build. And it's the one and only museum in the entire world dedicated to women in sports. So just not athletes, but coaches, you know, journalists, um, uh, business management, that kind of a thing. So I have some good friends at Clemson who run their sports history museum um, program. That's probably not the right way to say it. Um, and I actually had them kind of fact check that. And yeah, aside from, uh, there's an international women's baseball museum, uh, the cat, her group are doing, which is awesome. Uh, and then there is obviously university of Tennessee, right. Um, and what they have with the basketball program, but there wasn't any museum in the entire world, simply dedicated women in sports, uh, which blew my mind. So I kind of kicked down their doors and asked to be part of this and said, you know, we, we, we have to build this. Um, it, it just blew my mind that there was nothing out there in the world dedicated to women in sport. Um, they're always an exhibit in a bigger sport kind right. of a museum or in a hall of fame or that, but just nothing dedicated solely to women in sports. And there's so many stories out there that have never been told that, you know, we're truly losing the trailblazers out there, um, in the history. And so that has been a passion of mine since early 2017. Um, 
And yeah, next year is going to be incredibly exciting with their capital campaign and final site selection. Um, so I'm excited. Very excited. Uh, yeah. So I get this email and it's like, hey, you should know each other. And, you know, Women's Sports Museum, it doesn't exist. I'm like, like, I think it was like half all capitals when I replied <laughs> and like exclamation points. Um, and I was so excited. And then we happened to be at uh, the same event. I don't know, within that same week or the next week. So I got to meet you in person. And, you know, I, what I love about this is that you guys have kind of started small, you know, in terms of um, it's all volunteer run right now. And you mm-hmm. are working with community partners to to do small amounts. Of, well, not small amounts of fundraising, but smaller fundraising types of events and Next year's when you start what you said is your capital campaign, which will be the the real big like give us your millions of dollars campaign. Um, and your right now your big annual fundraiser is the gala, right? That is correct. I live and breathe it right now. <laughs> October 19th. I can tell you the entire program details if you really want. Uh, but yeah, no, October 19th is our major annual fundraiser. And by annual meaning, uh, this is, although it's our third annual uh, gala, I would easily argue it's the second annual gala. The first one was a, a kickoff, which was awesome with all American girls, baseball professionals. So the women who played uh, professional baseball back in AKA the league of their own. Uh, and that one was uh, pretty cool, but it wasn't a full set gala. Uh, like we have now where what we have is we have some trailblazers, uh, women in sport that we recognize and we honor and we celebrate. Um, and so our mission is uh, inspire girls to the power of sports. Um, and kind of, it kind of, I like to equate it to, you know, the New York times where they never used to do obituaries of, you know, women back in the day who were considered social disruptors, mm-hmm. which we now, you know, praise, uh, for, you know, their forward thinking and their bravery. Um, that's essentially what the trailblazers are as well, uh, where we're recognizing women who are, have trailblazed the path, whose stories have never been told, who have this amazing grit, um, because I've, recently learned, um, in my own capacity and platform with the refereeing, um, as well as seeing it through others that, uh, unfortunately until, you know, people can see, they don't believe. Um, and so that's really what our annual gala does is brings these trailblazers, recognizes and honors them. We do give two college scholarships out to, uh, local area high schoolers, uh, who played sports, who have shown that they have a, um, they, their lives, uh, the power of sports has changed their lives. So this year, yeah, this year we're incredibly excited. It's at Selby gardens on uh, Friday, October 19th down here in Sarasota, Florida, which is a gorgeous location. And, you know, we are honored, uh, to recognize five trailblazers this year. Um, so this year we're recognizing, uh, Justine Siegel, who's the first woman to coach for a major league baseball organization. Um, she threw, uh, uh, gosh, let me get this right, but wrong, uh, wrong, um, pitching, uh, and that was, that was big time. And she coached team Israel in 2017 at the world championship level. So you have a female, like in a very male dominated sport there, who's coaching. Uh, we have Donna Oriander who, if you haven't met her, or heard about her yet, or, you know, gotten with really the wows and books she's done. It's amazing. She is the former president commissioner of the women, the WNBA, um, as well as a past uh, VP of PGA, uh, and she has really uh, kind of an organization now that is looking to inspire uh, young girls, um, has really done a great job on the business side of sports and his trailblaze there. Um, Lauren Holtkamp Sterling, 
who we have already spoken to her about her a little bit. She's on uh, Team Long Term Girls Goals with me right now. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, she is the only female referee in the NBA, um, and uh, only one of three women who've ever been extended a full time contract in the NBA. Uh, so talk about an MVP, and you know somebody who's really trailblazing currently, uh, who's just an amazing person um, yeah. as it is as well. So um, yeah, and then there are our last two trailblazers to awesome as well as Colleen Healy. Uh, she is the first walk on for UConn women's basketball, uh, who's also awarded a full athletic scholarship. So if you know anything about UConn women's basketball, which I think that's if anyone knows anything about women's basketball, they know UConn uh, <laughs> is um, that, that that's not easy to do at all to walk on, let alone get a full uh, scholarship. So she, her story is about grit and, you know, um, you know, excelling and, you know, always putting in the work and not taking no as a, or not having no, uh, taking a no and turning it to yes is going to be an amazing story. And me, I'm like, you know, girl crush because I love UConn basketball, <laughs> men and women. So I am so excited. And there's a couple people coming in from her past teammates. So I'm like ready to have my stuff ready for them to sign. So yes, I will be that person. Um, I, I work with professional athletes, but there's only certain that get me really excited. Uh, so, uh, she's coming. And then our last one, which is really, I feel like epitomizes exactly what we're trying to do here at the women's sports museum is, uh, the organization is called associate association for intercollegiate athletics for women. So we call it for sure. AIWA. And I actually did my first play um, ever. It's called We Are Sarasota, where I kind of spoke about the Women's Sports Museum and that type of a thing. And one of the past presidents of this organization was in the stand, was, I guess, in the audience. And it was amazing and kind of a cool connection in that regard, where AIWA was essentially the organization that held women's college championships before Title IX. So before it was legally required for colleges to have women's sports, uh, this organization itself um, uh, created an atmosphere, an environment, organization, a championship league for women playing sports in college. So even before it was legally required, this organization did it. Obviously, uh, NCAA stepped in, Title you know, IX was in action, and they became defunct. But for about 12 years, this organization um, did this before it was required. And this is exactly, like I said, what the Women's Sports Museum is truly trying to capture. These women who trailblazed, who created these opportunities at, you know, a time period where women playing sports is crazy to think in the 70s and early 80s, it was still not socially acceptable to play sports at a higher level. Um, they did that. And Doris uh, Harrington was the lady who was in the stands who unfortunately just passed away um, two, three weeks ago. Um, so was going to be receiving, uh, the award on behalf of the AIWA. Um, thankfully we were able to get her recorded. Um, but it's, it's that piece of history. It's these trailblazers uh, and that fact we were able to honor, recognize them, tell other people their story and acknowledge them for, and celebrate them and inspire, you know, the current generation, um, and the next generation as to what women can do. Um, not, you know what we're told we can do, but actually see real life living examples and those in the past to truly appreciate, you know, the shoulders of giants that we do stand on today. I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, I, I'm, I'm so stoked too, for two different reasons, but I'm stoked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, I love the mission behind it and, you know, I, it was just one of those, it was one of those moments where you're like, yep, this fits me. Mm -hmm. Yep. This is what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, after speaking with you and Beth, Beth Green, um, who's also on the board um, about, you know, 
kind of focusing on it a little bit, um, you know, using the pod to, to put it out there and, and my network. So I was like, well, this is just like such a natural thing for me to, to, you know, jump on board with and try and, um, you know, use whatever influence this little pod has. Um, this little pod's awesome. Like catching up with this little pod. It's not a little <laughs> pod. It's a big pod. Um, Go but, out there and write your reviews, people. Yeah. <laughs> rate and review, damn it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, so, you know, super excited that you are uh, the, the Women's Sports Museum is the first um, entity and the gala on October 19th is the first event that this podcast has been a sponsor of. Um, and you know, I, I'm just super excited to come down there and get dressed up and hang out with you guys. And, um, you know, you mentioned a lot of really cool people and I bet maybe yeah. we could get a couple of them on the podcast. Oh, yeah. That's I'm just saying. <laughs> Two steps ahead of you, my dear. Two steps ahead just of you. Just <laughs> saying for my listeners. <laughs> also, so if people wanted, you know, to become a last minute sponsor, how could mm-hmm. they do that? Yeah, so uh, you can contact me either via email at C-U-N-K-E-L at womensportsmuseum.org or what's probably a lot easier than having to replay that a couple times to figure that out is you can go on to uh, our, our website, uh, womensportsmuseum.org uh, and we have a gala page where you can see all our trailblazers and past trailblazers, right? I didn't even talk about last year's recipients. Um, and we have our info at, uh, or you can call Mary Keneally's team, who is our event organizer and event planner. And there are uh, our sponsorship opportunities are on the website. Um, uh, to become a part of it and to sponsor it as well as patron tickets, which is a kind of an informal way to sponsor it as a, just a two ticket kind of a thing. And then there's individual tickets as well. So we're on Eventbrite um, and as well as our website, um, as well as contacting us via our email. Uh, yeah, we'll definitely get you on board. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm the big draw at the women's sports museum gala, <laughs> But I'm the biggest draw, is what you're but saying. But I'm going to be there. And if you happen to live in the area. Oh, yeah. It would be a good time to come and say hi to me. And, exactly. you know, meet some really cool women who are in sport. I mean, oh. you could meet Christina. Oh, God. And, and, and Lauren. And yeah. there are other people that will be there. And it will be fun. Um, so if you have the means and you are in the area, I would, I would highly recommend it. Um, I think it's going to be a great time and I'm super excited because I know that I am interviewing one of the women, um, Mm -hmm. the following day. And so that's going to be super exciting. Um, and then, you know, if people are interested in just kind of learning more or want to get involved, can't do it for, you know, the gala, but want to do, you know, do something for the museum or to get involved, do they go through the same process? Yeah, it definitely. Our website has a volunteer page. So like I said, I, we've had, of course, loads of interests, not just locally, but, you know, even internationally. So obviously there's a donation uh, ability. You can donate 
uh, on our website. You can fill out the volunteer information to kind of get an understanding as to where you'd like to volunteer at. Um, one thing that's really exciting about the Women's Sports Museum that we just launched at the um, International Women's Baseball Championships that was held for the first time on U.S. soil in Bear Beach, Florida, uh, we launched our what we call our pop-up tent museum or a pop-up museum. And it, uh, it's, it's fun. It's a fun museum. It's super cute. <laughs> and, um, the point of it is that's going to be going around, not just here, definitely not local, right? It's, it's our, a little beating heart. It's going to be our extension and that's going to go to different areas. Yeah. Hopefully a big corporate sponsor just wants to come and build us an entire truckload. That would be great. Um, that would be but cool. we're going to be, yeah. So we're going to be going to different events, at least 26 events in the next year, uh, where we'll bring a piece of history with us and talk about it. And, you know, and our next launch date for that thing will be, um, funny enough, not funny enough, but, uh, October 20th, the day after the Women's Sports Museum Gala at the Sarasota Farmers Market downtown. Uh, it sounds so quaint, right? But um, where uh, uh, we're going to have one of our trailblazers, Donna Oriander, who will be doing a book signing in it as well. Um, and so she'll be there. A pop-up tent will be there. We'll be there to answer some questions. And so obviously a pop-up museum is one thing we can definitely use some help and, you know, some coordination and anyone who has an event that they say, hey, this would be great at, right? Just getting that on our on our, uh, our horizon. That would be interesting. And one thing I just realized that I forgot is kind of cool at the, at the gala will also be, uh, one of the trophy, t- um, the NCAA women's final four is going to be, uh, in, uh, Tampa in April, 2019. And the trophy does a, uh, kind of the trophy does a tour. And one of the tour stops is going to be the gala. Um, so the NCAA women's basketball trophy will be at the gala as well. That's uh, exciting. That is exciting. So, um, yeah, so that'll be there. And I think the Tampa Bay Sports Commission for helping to coordinate that, Claire Lessinger and her group. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So we'll Claire was on our- the podcast. You guys all know Claire. <laughs> Claire is awesome. Claire yes. is a mover and a shaker and a collaborator. So. Claire is currently at the ESPNW Women in Sports Summit, and I'm so jealous. I know. I saw that as well. <sighs> I have a couple questions I need to bugger, and I'm like, okay, wait, she's over there. And I'm like, let her enjoy that moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I saw your tweet. I think we're going to go next year. I don't know what value, if any value, but hey, maybe I'll just huge. It'll be huge out. value. Yeah. Look, look oh, at like, all the people who are there. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. So, and yeah, I'm going to the women's sports, go figure, right? Let's just add some more stuff. The women's sports foundation. Uh, oh, you and, are? Yes. The Morgan, Morgan Stanley women's sports foundation have an event on October 16th. It's like an all day event. Um, I'll be attending that. I forgot what the proper term of it is or the proper naming of it is, but uh, can't do the gala just cause I got to come back and do our gala. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'll be up there too. That'll be fun. Oh, fun. Well, um, in all of this madness, uh-huh. all of the crazy things that you do, and by crazy, I just mean like lots, not like anything else, but in all of that, what do you do by way of self-care? Ooh, Ooh I know. That is a great question. Um, it's. That's a great question because it's a new lesson I learned about being able to prioritize yourself first and Mm -hmm. to take care of yourself before you take care of anyone else, which back in the day, I would say that comes off as sounding selfish, but it's not at all. So the best way for self-care for me, honestly, is sounds really dorky, but time blocking and time blocking specifically for me time slash family time and protecting my calendar ferociously. 
Um, probably not the answer you were expecting to hear. No, I I think uh, that's, I think it's great. So delve into it a little bit more, you know, uh, people who are listening, I think understand what time blocking is. It's basically just, you know, blocking off time on your digital calendar, your paper calendar, whatever you use. If you're weird, like me use two. Um, (laughs) and seriously, and I thought about going to back to paper too. So I'm like, it's crazy. Um, and it might just be for like during this period of time, I'm only going to work on this thing. You know, Correct. I do that. I, I did that a lot this past year when it was just me in our legal department. And I was like, OK, I'm going to, you know, lump like things with like things. And during this two hour period of time, I'm only going to work on partnership deals. And during mm-hmm. this one hour period of time, I'm only going to work on trade deals, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So no, you, you hit it on the head. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much what we do. And I think it, by prioritizing. So uh, just a plug, cause I love this book. The one thing uh, by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan, I don't know if you've read it, uh, was one thing that really, go figure, pun intended, uh, really kind of helped <laughs> me with regard to self care where, you know, work-life balance is a myth. And I love that because it is a myth. Like it makes you envision the fact that like, you're like, able to keep everything unilaterally balanced at all times, which is impossible as anyone who tries, they call it counterbalancing instead, which is staying in extremes in different areas. But long story short, the time blocking component came out of there where they said, uh, you know, don't make your calendar a parking lot for other people's priorities. Um, that was probably a statement there that really hit me. Yeah. And I was like, Oh crap. So I would look back at my calendar and said, what is on this calendar that doesn't fit with my priorities and the one thing that I must get done that week or that day or that month. And I would start deleting. I know that for people, I'm like, I'm no longer available to me, right? Things that at the end of the day don't help me get to my priorities, but they might help that person. Right. And then nothing wrong with it. It's just at the end of the day, I re-engaged and reevaluated. So by me saying self-care, like kind of to your component, I would say this time from this time period, I'm working on X, Y, and Z, or this time in this time period, Hey, every Tuesday I have lunch uh, with Liz Lowe and we talk about the deadlift effect and other stuff. And it's just unilaterally every Tuesday from 12 to one 30 done. I mean, we also sit outside of whole foods and heckle people, which is pretty much fun. Um, but like, that's a self care, right? I'm I, I, oh, oh, you should. It's so I actually got some clients that way by heckling people outside of whole foods. Amazing. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It, it's fun. So I'm like, we were oh, destined can, to be friends. I know. I'm like, now I can use the business card. Cause this is, you know, uh, a, you know, client, you know, cultivation, uh, <laughs> But um, yeah, different things like that. Even saying, hey, you know what? This time and this time, I'm going to go get my nails done. Not feel guilty about it, right? Um, This time and this time, you know, it's just me time. Or this time and this time, like my daughter's now playing soccer every Friday at 5 p.m. Her soccer practice starts. So I'm out by Friday at 4 p.m. And it's just in my calendar. Because people, there's some people in my life who have access to my calendar. You can actually schedule things. uh, And uh, they've been trained very well and they're awesome. But uh, yeah, I just my biggest thing for self care is to make sure my calendar is not a parking lot for other people's priorities. So do you do you make a point of like every you know week or every month or whatever, just making sure that you're inputting you know the various things that you need, like whether it's you know from five to eight in the morning, I'm working out and showering and whatever. So don't set me up for a call at eight. <laughs> yeah, that type of thing. <laughs> It is, but that was more of a mental because at the end of the day, right, you don't want to also burn yourself out with actually like calendaring everything in your life. But like five in the morning, nobody's awake. So I know for myself and if my husband's in town, which he's been gone the past two, three weeks, so it's been crazy town for me to balance the the training schedule with 
like, like life schedule is finding time where like that, right. I go train from five 30 to seven 30. Right. Um, and my, uh, my paralegal knows not to schedule anything with the client. Cause I've asked her nothing in the morning. Cause that's my working time block because that's where my willpower and my motivation is the highest, um, schedule things in the afternoon because that's the time that I probably would rather engage with someone as opposed to being quiet and working on a document or a litigation uh, issue or researching or something like that. So, um, yeah, so, so yeah, I just kind of told him like time periods, times of preference, obviously the client really needs to meet in the morning. I can make that. And then I just, you know, reschedule my calendar, but yeah, they, they kind of know I train every day from five 30 to seven 30. Um, and then have to take my kid and come in. So yeah. thankfully I work in an amazing firm that, you know, in, in my employment contract actually specifically states, Christina has considerable flexibility for her refereeing. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, and I know I'm in a good place because I was really, it was a kind of a weirdish interview dinner thing. Um, cause I had done, you know, my first law firm practice. And then I jumped to another firm, uh, I was paying a lot more and, you know, more opportunities. Uh, but that really, as you know, kind of be turned into, even though we're a boutique construction firm, I service a lot of big law clients. Um, uh, so obviously that just zapped all my time and I had no time to train. Um, so this third firm, which actually wasn't going to go, I was going to go do solo. I was just going to manage everything. Um, they came after me and, uh, at, at dinner, I always remember my husband says it was the weirdest like dinner, you know, dining interview kind of a thing with the managing partner and his wife. Cause I like pretty much came out of the game. I said, you don't want to hire me. I'm a horrible employee. I kept telling them that oh, <laughs> I like, my you gosh. don't want to hire me. And my husband's like, that was weird. And I was like, well, I just had already gone through it twice where I verbally and gave them time periods. Like if I go to a FIFA event, I might be gone for 28 days. And then I have two weeks leading up to that. And then I might be in China. Like my, I was for example, one time I was in China for 30 days and I'm like, I'm in, I, I could work remotely. My time periods will be different. I won't be able to put as many hours in. Um, and, and, you know, in the legal world, we're very traditional and we don't very, move very quickly um, and understand the concept that you don't have to physically be in your office from seven to seven to get work done. Um, <laughs> yeah. That this firm was like, no, we get it. And I'm like, I don't think you fully do. And I'm like, but whatever, we'll try it out. And so uh, actually when they handed me the employment agreement, it had that in there. I was like, all right, let's test this out. And, um, you know, there's always a honeymoon phase. So I'm like, eh, we'll be fine. And then six months, a year, a year and a half, three years later, we're still in that honeymoon phase. So found a, found a great place that supports what I do. And that's probably the only way I'm able to balance the legal and the refereeing side. That's so fantastic. And so rare. I mean, even in house, right? Like I get, I get the, the, raised eyebrows or I did for a while and still every once in a while I do whenever speaking to another lawyer I'm like yeah and I have a podcast they're like what yeah (laughs) you have other activities outside of this it's not only that it's like you record yourself talking (laughs) and your client isn't weirded out like well I can't really speak to that part but (laughs) (laughs) I'm not entirely sure but uh, yeah, yeah, I do that. <laughs> yeah. And just, it's, you know, it's kind of funny when we do these things that are, that make people a little uncomfortable, but then you could see them going, oh, okay. All right. And have you found that to be, I'm going to start asking you questions. And have you found that to be something that, you know, excites people, right? It kind of pulls you out of the crowd, like in this legal world where, you know, everyone kind of respectfully does 
everyone has something, but nobody talks about it. But like, this is kind of like your, 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 your wow factor, your differentiation. I think it's, um, I think it depends. So I actually, it's funny. I was texting with, um, a colleague of mine at another organization in a different sport. Um, and it's somebody who hasn't really commented on the podcast or anything. And, um, she gave me a compliment, you know, and I was like, oh, you're listening? Like, <laughs> wow, uh-huh. you know, and and so it's still I, I still feel very tentative about it when it comes to the legal circles. I think yeah. there are a lot of people who are like, you're brave for doing something like that. It's it's how they all have responded to me being open about depression and anxiety as well. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people who just look at me like I'm this really rare bird you know and like aren't really sure what to do with me uh, <laughs> and that's okay too I mean part of it's I don't I don't play the part of lawyer very well yeah. right like I don't I don't speak like your typical lawyer I don't you know I, I don't have any of those pretenses um, and I'm I'm okay being a vulnerable leaner leader right mm-hmm. or leading through vulnerability whatever and and the podcast was a really crazy idea. I mean, think about it. Who, what, what client is okay with their lawyer? I, I mean, let's, you know, I could think of a few actually right now from cable news, but aside from those, like, <laughs> you know, it, it's not a, it, it isn't a typical thing it, because podcasting in and of itself, it's not new, but it's new. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there are still plenty of people who have no idea what the hell a podcast is, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's kind of what makes it cool too, because they're like, oh, really? It's kind of like that. Okay. Um, and I think now that there are so many episodes and people n- understand what it's about and see how connected to like my quote unquote brand it is mm-hmm. that they're like, okay, I get it. Right. But like if I talk to a search firm, if I were to do that, um, they're still they still don't know how to take it. Right. Because they're used to like you go to a white shoe law firm and you, you know, the fact that I never was at a firm in and of itself just causes massive strokes with recruiters. (laughs) They just don't know what to do with me. Um, it is. It's our world so archaic. It's so behind the times. If there's two industries you want to do a disruption in, and you can probably be very profitable in, is the legal world and the financial industry. Yeah. Period. Like with all, I clerked at the federal court there in the Middle District of Tampa, and I think it was up to about four years ago they were still using WordPerfect. Uh, <laughs> what? Yes, WordPerfect. I'm like, why? Why are we still using WordPerfect? Um, Yes, we're we're all behind the times, especially when it comes to like you say the the understanding that you know, like kind of to your point that you just said, like being able to do something that isn't you know buttoned up and you know this normal nomenclature kind of approach to 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 life, um, right? Uh, which that's why I asked the question because I think this when I found this out it might weird people out like excited me. I was like, yes, you're different. Yeah, and. <laughs> like, and- and, and it's like, this is your passion. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Let's and it's it. fun. There are some people who are like, okay, cool. I get it. I think that's great. You know, and, and more often than not, that's now the case. Again, I think with the body of work that's out there now, 
Um, it's easier, but it's always an interesting conversation. And, you know, when, when people do approach me about like other positions or something, I'm always really open about it. I'm like, listen, I have this. I'm not saying I'm going to have it forever. I'm not saying I'm not going to have it forever, but Mm -hmm. understand that it's a part of my life right now. And I would like it to continue, um, for the time being. So you've got to be okay with that. And Mm -hmm. it makes me a better business person because it's its own little business. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning all these weird things that I never knew before. (laughs) Like the referee world, Mm -hmm. like the referee world or like, I don't know how to put on a successful social media campaign, which I still don't know how to do. But I'm working on it, trying to figure it out. When you do, let me know. I got to, I got to, I got my spare time. I got to figure that out as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to hire someone once I can get enough. Well, I'll just fundraise. I could, I'm pretty yeah, sure I'm good at yeah. fundraising, unfortunately. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's funny because I'm not going to compare, well, I am. I'm not going to compare myself to like, you know, IAWA, but like, you know, where you, me, you know, women who are doing these really different things. I mean, men too, but whatever. Um, you know, nobody's going to talk about us now, but in like a hundred years, there's going to be a monument or something. Yeah. Yeah, We're going to be like the women from the New York times where like no one talks about us or cares or more horrible people. And then like uh, hundreds of years later, hundreds of years exaggeration, obviously then we'll get memorialized. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. Well, that was our, our weird morbid thought for the day. Um, (laughs) I don't even know how we got there. I'm sorry, guys. It's sometimes it's a journey on this podcast. It it truly is a journey. Um, Okay. So how can people follow you and all your stuff? Oh gosh. A good question. Uh, I I, I guess that's social media to a certain extent. Uh, I do have an Instagram. I'm trying to get better at that. I've been yelled at for not being good at Instagram. So I'm trying to get better at that because apparently Facebook is dead. Um, I don't know. It's been a great platform for me with the deadlift effect, but that's a different story. Um, yeah, I would definitely say follow the Women's Sports Museum on Facebook and social media links on the website. Uh, my Instagram is probably where I'm putting the most current information with respect to all the fun little uh, worlds that I balance and that kind of a thing. So hopefully provide content in that regard. Handles. Um, Oh, yeah. See, this is why I'm horrible at this stuff. Uh, yes, I do have a handle. So, yeah, I was just like, meh. Uh, yeah, so I am going to be a little bit better on, especially Twitter. Uh, Biz Sports Law uh, is my handle, B-I-Z-S-P-O-R-T-S Law. Um, man, I feel like I'm on a spot because I don't even know what my Instagram handle is. It's like Christina Uncle Spark Change or something like that. So I always get yelled at because everyone tells me it's too long, but it I is. really we'll work on I really. That. Yeah, that's what everyone says. And I'm like, my goal is to spark change, S-P-A-R-Q. Um, so yeah, I would say in this generation, Google me and you'll find me. Uh, yeah, yeah. You'll find a bunch of other stuff about me as well too. Don't believe 99.9% of it. But anyhow, that's a different story. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time, for time blocking the time. Um, (laughs) I did ask you to send me a calendar invite, didn't I? (laughs) Yeah, to have this discussion. Uh, No, I'm glad because I needed to, too. Um, And, you know, looking forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. Yes, definitely. See you soon. And thank you for this opportunity. And uh, yeah, thank you for the work you do. It truly, it truly is trailblazing in this regard of 
you know, putting people's stories out there. And I'm excited that we finally met and we have synergy and I have more to come. So this is only the beginning. Thank you so much to Christina for coming on. I had so much fun talking to her and I can't wait to see her in a couple of weeks. Um, I think the gala is going to be a ton of fun. So again, if you can, please come on out. I think it would be uh, great for you. Plus, there are going to be so many cool women in sports there. Um, I, I just can't wait. Please pretty please make sure you are subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google. Remember that when you rate and review, you're helping us be seen by other people who may not have known that we existed. So um, you're doing you're doing a good thing for the world. <laughs> um, you can also find us on RadioInfluence.com or LTPFPod.com. And um, on all the socials at LTPF pod that's on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And the email is LTPFpod at gmail.com. I appreciate y'all being here and 50 is coming in a couple weeks. I think we might get some merch. What do you guys think about that? Let me know. Talk soon. Bye. This is a Crush Performance Quick Fix on Radio Influence. So listen, everybody, I just got back from a very cool trip to New Zealand. My first time down there, I was invited down there to speak at a uh, clinic of coaching. Coaching development uh, was sort of the theme of great coaches of of all levels of play, right from their national uh, and pro team. They have a new pro team that's going to be playing in the Australian Baseball League there. Uh, and also met with um, some of their Olympic sports. Their softball. Softball is huge there. Cricket is a big, big sport. Met with one of their top diving instructors. And got a chance to also meet with their rugby community. And some, man, just some great, great people there. Something that was very profound to me. It's similar to what we talk about in terms of talent development. Uh, if you've listened to the show before, You've heard us probably talk about how we're mismanaging our talent and the fact that I truly do believe that we're wasting more talent than we develop because we know that at the developmental ages, let's say 13, 14, 15, and 16, when the kids start you know, getting pretty competent in sport, they understand competition, they have some drive and maybe some passion showing. Not that younger kids don't, but we want to try to keep those younger kids involved in multiple sports and just feed that fire for sure. But in our minds, I think that we gravitate towards the best players and the ones that don't quite show well at that 13, 14, 15 year age mark. uh, We sort of brush off to the side and let them sort of figure things out for themselves, which could be good or bad. Maybe the jury's still out on that one. But the problem is the talent that we see at 13, 14, 15 and 16, the standouts there for the most part, if you look at some of the data around 60 to 70 percent, of the top players in that age group will not rise to be the best. So where are the best coming from? Well, they're coming from that periphery, that the periphery that we've ignored in the developmental model. Crush Performance with Jeff Crushell can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.